Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Revelation 20. We'll look at the uh, first 10 verses tonight. I want to start out with a story. Perhaps some of you remember this. Uh, It was on the news a few years ago when it happened. It took place in February of 2015. Uh, there were 20 Egyptian Christians that were lined up on a beach in Libya. They were in orange uh, jumpsuits, and after refusing to renounce their faith in Christ, they were uh, forced to kneel down, and one by one, they were savagely beheaded. You remember that? Well, anyway, I, I remember a video circulating about that. That was in February of 2015. It wasn't until three years later in 2018 that their bodies were returned to Egypt to be properly buried. And although their physical bodies were treated uh, with great indignity, their souls immediately entered into the presence of the Lord, where as priests of God they joined with Him in ruling and reigning uh, in heaven. And when Christ returns to earth at the end of history, they will accompany Him and be the first to receive their glorified resurrected body. Now, I say that, and you might say, well, how do you know that mystery? And I would say that the answer is found in Revelation 20, verse 4. In verse 4, uh, John says, I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who, not, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And we're going to look at what in the world does this thousand years uh, term mean in Revelation chapter 20. I think that uh, Herschel Hobbes said it best. He said this chapter, Revelation 20, is the source of many problems when it comes to interpretation, but the flow of truth is clear throughout, and that's absolutely right. I wrestle with this uh, lesson because I'm like, how do I want to present this? And I finally decided, here's how I'm going to present this. If I was doing a series on Revelation 20, we'd take about five weeks, okay? Uh, But instead, I don't have that. So instead of wasting time on the views of Revelation 20, and there are four different views, by the way, I want to teach it as I see it, and um, we'll go from there. Now, Revelation 20 falls into, not into, into four sections of roughly equal length, and uh, each one is related to the others. The unifying theme is a thousand years. Uh, you'll see in the first three verses that Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then in verses 4 through 6, we see that there are saints reigning in heaven uh, with Christ during this thousand years, and they mention a first and a second death and a first and a second resurrection, and we'll talk about that later. And then the third section of Revelation 20 speaks of the last battle and the judgment of Satan at the end of this thousand years. That's verses 7 through 10. And then the next time we come back and look at this, We'll look at the last section of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, uh, the great white throne judgment, the the last judgment of all mankind um, at the end of this thousand years. Now, let me say this quickly. I love John. I love reading John. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, the Epistles of John. And then he wrote Revelation And what I have seen through the years as I read uh, uh, what John wrote is I feel like I can say this about his writing style. For example, in the Gospels, John's Gospel is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He takes a completely different approach. Um, He goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all of a sudden you realize that this word that was present in creation became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's how he introduces Jesus. And then as you read the purpose of the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, I think verse 31, he says, I wrote these things that you might you know, have faith 
in Jesus, you know, the name of Jesus, and have life, okay? In other words, so that you can be saved. Well, you'll know as you read through the Gospel of John that there's seven signs that are uh, mentioned, seven signs, and each one of those signs reveals something about Christ. He's the bread of life that came down from heaven. He is the water of life. If you drink what uh, he gives you, you'll never thirst again, you know? He is the uh, shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Um, He is the resurrection and the life, and on and on and on, all these I am statements. Well, what I'm trying to say is, in the Gospel of John, he kind of makes a circle, and then he comes back and he makes another circle. And each time, it's like screwing, uh, taking a screwdriver and a screw and screwing that screw into a piece of wood. You're going around and round, and you're going deeper and deeper. It's circular rather than linear. In a similar way, when you look at 1 John, now I'm not going to mention 2 and 3 John. They're like postcards. They're very, very short. But when you look at 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, uh, it's a short letter, five chapters, and he starts with very simple words, light, darkness, love, hate, truth, error, uh, life, death. Simple words, very concrete, contrasting words. And he begins to take those words and he begins to just crisscross them. And as you go through those five chapters, he takes these simple concepts and he brings them all together and weaves this very profound tapestry of truth. Uh, In a similar way, when you get to Revelation, here we're used to looking at Revelation linearly, okay? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And it's written linearly in the sense that I saw this, then I saw that, and then I saw this. However, when you begin to study the visions he had, it seems to me like he's doing what he's done in previous writings. He's making a circle, and he comes back to it, and he comes back to it, and each time he gets a little bit deeper. I've hinted at that as we've gone along. Um, When you look at Revelation, he'll introduce things, and then later he'll come back and he'll expound them on it. He'll explain it, and then he'll expand it. And I believe that's what's happening here. For instance, um, one of the first questions you've got to answer about the uh, chapter 20 is where does this time period of a thousand years fit? Many people look at this and they go, well, in Revelation 19, Jesus came back. You know, he came back, he's on the white horse, uh, he shows up. And, you know, he's here, right? Jesus came. He showed up. The second coming is in chapter 19. No matter what you believe about chapter 20, everybody agrees in chapter 19, Christ comes back, okay? And then a lot of people go, well, okay, that happened in chapter 19. This happens in chapter 20, so this must come after that. Here's my reason why I don't believe that. In chapter 19 in Revelation, Christ comes riding on the, on the white horse, okay? And what happens? He defeats all his enemies. Look, if you will, in Revelation 19, look in verse uh, 18. Of course, in in verse 17, he says, Come, gather together for the great supper of God. In Revelation 19, verse 18, So that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, of horses, of the riders, of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. And that's exactly what happens. And then the beast is taken prisoner along with the false prophet and uh, everybody's wiped out. Matter of fact, you know, the beast and false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. And then in verse 21, the rest were killed with a sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. My question is, who's left? Nobody. So... I really do believe that Revelation 20 is talking about a time period, a thousand years, but it doesn't happen after the second coming. Now, that might be new to you. That might be different to you. I could give you a whole bunch of reasons here, but that's my biggest one. So let's get into this. Let's just look at what the Scripture says tonight. Hope you have an open mind. We're going to look at this, and we'll go from there. So I, I hope to answer this question. What is happening during this period of a thousand years? That's my question. And I'm going to give you three things according to the scriptures here in verses 1 through 10 that are happening during this period of a thousand years. The first thing that's happening is Satan is bound. 
so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Look, if you will, in verses 1 through 3. Then, John writes, I saw, and keep in mind, all these are visions. He's, he's describing things that he sees. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed, and after that he must be released for a short time. Now, first of all, as I was studying this, didn't notice this before, and it's cool when you study something um, that you've studied in the past and you see something new. That's always cool. Well, here's something new that I found. As I was reading those three verses, I realized that verse 2, notice how the devil is described in verse 2. He's given four names. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Notice the names. Notice the order. Now, go back in your Bible, Revelation, go back to chapter 12. In Revelation 12, you have this vision of a woman who's about to give birth to a child. And as she's in labor about to give birth, there's this dragon that's waiting for her to give birth to the child so he can devour the child. You remember that vision? Well, look in Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. Same four names, same order, and even the descriptive ancient serpent. So what I'm trying to say here is Revelation, what's happening here to de the devil in Revelation 20, is certainly got some kind of link to what is going on here in Revelation 12, verse 9. So what happened in, verse, in chapter 12? The great dragon was thrown down, okay, out of heaven, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, still reading Revelation 12, verse 9, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels with him. And um, that's very interesting. So what is that a picture of? Okay, I believe it's a picture of, we, we know what the Bible says about the devil, you know, when you put it all together. I don't have time to do that right now, but I can kind of summarize it for you. We know that the, uh, the devil is an angel. We know that at once he was in heaven and then he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God, right? And he fell from heaven. He took a third of the angels with him and then he comes to earth. He, through the serpent, tempted Eve, which led her and Adam to sin. You know the story from there. Uh, the devil is very alive and well. He's very active at work in this world. However, what John is trying to tell us through apocalyptic language in Revelation 20 is that there is one thing he can't do until God says, okay, now you can the one thing that he can't do is deceive all the nations. Now, he's good at it. He can do it. But God is saying, I'm not going to allow you to do that until I say you can do it. Does that make sense? And so that's what's going on here. Satan is bound, and he's bound for one specific purpose. And sometimes people get all caught up in the language. I think it's absurd to think that a, a physical angel could physically imprison the devil and think that that's going to work because, you know, they're spiritual beings. I think he's using apocalyptic language to tell us something here. The point is Satan is bound for a reason. Why? So he cannot deceive the nations until this thousand years is complete and then after that thousand years, it says he must be released for a short time, okay? 
So keep that in mind. So let's let's think about three questions here. We gotta we gotta we gotta sort of go through some twists and turns. So stick with me here. I've got three questions I'm gonna throw at you, and I'm gonna try to my best to answer them, and they will help us understand this part of Revelation 20. The first question we have to consider is what does the binding of Satan mean? What what in the world does that mean? And then we gotta answer the question. What does the thousand years mean? And then, you know, at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be released. And so what does that mean? So let's, let's talk about that. Uh, the purpose is to prevent the devil from deceiving the nations. I like what G.K. Bill said. He said, the binding, uh, the expulsion and fall from heaven of Satan portrayed in Revelation 12 and what we learn here in Revelation 20 are to be seen in conjunction with other New Testament passages using similar terminology. In other words, what else does the Bible say, particularly in the New Testament, about the devil that uses this kind of language, about binding and casting out and those kinds of things? Well, if you think about it, you'll remember Jesus in the Gospels where he speaks of binding the strong man, okay? Binding the strong man and then plundering his goods implying that he's come to bind the enemy. Now, the devil is the prince of this world. Christ came, okay? Christ came to earth, and he bound the strong man. He began to cast out demons. Remember that in the Gospels? He cast out demons. The religious leaders said, oh, he's just Beelzebub. In other words, the reason why Jesus is casting out demons is he's of the devil. And Jesus basically said, that doesn't even make any sense. If a house is divided against itself, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to stand, it's going to fall. And, and then Jesus basically says, if I am casting out demons, then that's a sign that the kingdom of God is among you. And we know that the kingdom of God was among them. Why? Because the king was here and his name is Jesus. Well, that's one thing we think of. Also, remember when Jesus sent out the 70 and then they came back and gave a report of all the great things they did in his name. They even cast out demons. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, right? Remember when he said that? Uh, when he gave the disciples authority to do that. Then, then Paul states in Colossians how Christ disarmed the demonic rulers through the cross. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he, he disarmed, he defeated uh, you know, the, the evil forces. And then Hebrews 2.14 speaks of Christ rendering the devil powerless. Why? Because he overcame death. Okay, he overcame death. And then according to Revelation 20, uh, verses 7 through, for, through 10, we know that at the end of this thousand-year reign, he will be released before Christ uh, comes back. But we'll get to that in a minute. Now, Anthony Hokema says this. He says, when you look at this, what does it mean for Satan to be bound? He says, this does not imply that Satan can do no harm whatever while he's bound. It only means what John says, that while Satan is bound, he cannot deceive the nations in such a way as to keep them from learning about the truth of God. Later in this chapter, we're told that when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and what's the very first thing he does? Go out and deceive the nations. The one thing he couldn't do for a thousand years, okay? <clears throat> this he cannot do while he's bound. So we conclude then that the binding of Satan during this gospel age means first, he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel, and second, he cannot gather all the enemies of, of Christ together uh, to attack the church and God's people. And that is true. And so... I, it got me to thinking, and I let me just take 30 seconds to, to throw something at you to think about. When you think about what is God's plan for the nations, okay? I'm reminded of Abraham in Genesis 12. What did God say to Abraham? I'm going to bless all nations through you. And God has, and he did, because where did Christ come from? from the lineage of Abraham. Matter of fact, when you get to uh, Matthew chapter 1, you read the genealogy of Jesus, the two big names that are dropped is from Abraham and David, here comes Jesus. Why is that significant? Because God told Abraham, through you, 
I will bless all nations. Well, Jesus comes through Abraham, but he not only comes through Abraham, he comes through David, and God promised David that one of his descendants would be a king and would rule and reign forever. Newsflash, that's Jesus, okay? So that, that I'm reminded of that, and then I'm reminded of the role of Israel in the Old Testament. Isaiah talks a lot about it. But Isaiah taught us that in the Old Testament, God's role for Israel was to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. They, they, you know, they were the, the chosen people, and God was working in them and through them, and they were to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations, to show the world the way. And then, of course, Christ came. And when He came, His last words to His disciples were, Go and make disciples of all nations. Did you catch that? All nations. Now, what's significant about that statement is what he said just before that. Just before that, just to give you full context, Jesus has already been on the cross. He died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. He appears to his disciples, and his last words in Matthew 28, 18 are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You feel that? So, God has a plan for all the nations. We know that through the Great Commission. He has given us a charge, a mandate. He's commissioned us to take the gospel to the nations. We don't have to ask for permission. We don't have to wonder if we should do this or shouldn't do this. He said, look, all authority belongs to me in heaven and earth. I'm telling you, go do this. And oh, by the way, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Well, that's what I think when I think of the nations. But that's just a side note. Let's get back to it. So, the first thing we seek to answer is, what does the binding of Satan mean? It simply means that there's one thing he can't do until God says, okay, it's time, and that is to deceive the nations. I mean, you think about it. That's consistent with what the Bible teaches. Remember in the story of Job, God told the devil, you can do this, but you can't go any further, okay? Um, when, when In the Gospels, when uh, Peter... He, in one minute, he's confessing, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then the next minute, he's telling Jesus, no, you know, I will, this ain't going to happen to you. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you to the end. And, and see, Jesus has to rebuke him. And um, you, you realize that um, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you, Peter, like wheat. But I have prayed for you. In other words, Satan is wanting to do something in your life, Peter, and I'm going to allow him to do certain things, but there's a line he can't cross. Well, God is the only sovereign being in the universe, and when he says that Satan can't do something, that's exactly what it means. You can't do this until I tell you to or allow you to. And that's what's going on with the bounding of Satan. It doesn't mean that he's in a jail cell somewhere and he can't do anything. It simply means he cannot deceive the nations until this thousand-year period is over. So that leads to the second question that I mentioned a while ago. The second question is, what does the thousand years mean? Well, let's look at that. Bottom line, no matter who you talk to, no matter how much you read about it, there's a fork in the road. Is this thousand-year period of time, is it literal or is it symbolic? Okay? I'm going to say my conviction is it's symbolic. You may disagree, and that's okay, but let me share this with you just for food for thought. Herschel Hobbes, <laughs> on a lighter note, here's what Herschel Hobbes said. Herschel Hobbes said, Someone remarked that the millennium did not usher in a thousand years of peace, but almost 2,000 years of theological strife. Amen or oh me, right? <laughs> well, anyway, A.T. Robertson who uh, years ago wrote a wonderful book called Word Pictures. He had such a, a great understanding of the biblical Greek language. Here's what he says. He says, in this book of symbols, referring to Revelation, in this book of symbols, how long is a thousand years? 
all sorts of theories are proposed, none of which fully satisfy. Perhaps Peter has given us the only solution open to us in 2 Peter 3.8 when he argues that one day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. It will help us all to remember that God's clock doesn't run by ours and that times and seasons are with Him. And this wonderful book was written to comfort saints in a time of great trial, not to create strife among them. That's true. Well, that got me thinking. I think that A.T. Robertson is on to something. However, I don't think he went far enough on the limb to really help us understand what he was trying to say. So for a moment... Hold your place at Revelation 20, and I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And what I think you will find is more than meets the eye. You see, it's very easy for me to quote a verse that says, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, and then smile and say, I don't think it's literal, and then move right along. But that's, that's not good enough for me. That's not solid enough for me to stand on, okay? So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see what Peter said in its context. And when you see what Peter said in its context, believe you me, you will take a second look at this. Here's what I mean. In 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and I'm just going to read 13 verses, here's what Peter said. He said, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is His coming that He promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, All things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water, and through these the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, Don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, The heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. And since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on His promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, let me point out something in case you didn't catch it. In that passage, 13 verses, Peter mentions three things. He mentions the second coming of Christ a few times. He leads out with it there in verse 4. Scoffers are going to come saying, where is His coming that He promised? Every year that goes by, hey, He hasn't come back yet. Where's the second coming of Christ y'all are talking about, right? Then he mentions this term of a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. A day is like a thousand years. And then he ends with, in verse 13, based on his promise, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth. Now, what am I trying to get at? Very simple. In Revelation 19, we see the second coming of Christ. In Revelation 20, we see this mentioning of a thousand years and then in revelation 21 verse 1 john says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth sounds to me like john and peter are talking about the same thing john is talking about the second coming of christ the mentioning of a thousand years and then a new heaven and a new earth in three chapters 
in 13 verses, Peter is talking about the second coming of Christ, the mentioning of a thousand years, and the new heaven and the new earth. Not only do we have the same terminology, we have the same terminology by two different disciples of Jesus in, an, in the same kind of context, the end of the world. Okay? If you ask Peter, is the thousand years literal? He'd say, no, it's like, a, it's like a day, and a day's like a thousand years. It's relative. It's relative. I believe John would say the same thing. Now, some people are disturbed by that. When you teach that or when you talk about that, that really disturbs them because then they're thinking that you're liberal because you're not literal. Well, I do believe in interpreting the Bible literally, but there's so much stuff in the Bible that's figurative that you've got to pay attention. The Bible's like a book of literature. There's so much diverse there. There's law, there's history, there's prophecy, there's parables, uh, there's doctrine, there's duty. You can't treat it all the same. You've got to approach it the way it's written and go from there. Do I believe that uh, Christ will literally physically come back to earth? Yes. Do I believe that he will literally rule and reign? Yes. For a thousand years? Nope. Try forever. Amen. Okay? Forever. But I'm getting ahead of myself, okay? I'll explain that in a little bit. But it won't be just for a thousand years. It'll be forever. Um, Michael Kukendall, who I've quoted a lot, he's the professor at Golden Gate Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary. And he says this, his conclusion, he says, the thousand years is not a literal chronological time period. Rather, it symbolizes the complete era between Christ's first and second coming. And I would agree, okay? You can say between the first coming and the second coming. You can say between his resurrection and his return. Or you could say between his ascension into heaven and his second appearing. I just use different words, but I'm just saying potato, patata, okay? I'm saying the same thing, okay? Why do I believe that? Because Satan was bound from doing certain things as a result of what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again. He defeated death, hell, and the grave, and the devil right back there, okay? That was D-Day, okay? That was D-Day. That's when it all changed. But we're still waiting on D-Day, Victory Day, when Christ comes back, He appears in the clouds, and that's when we know it's over. Praise God, it's over. And we are with Him forever. Those that are dead in Christ will be raised first. They'll have that, that new glorified body. Those that are living at the time when it happens, they will be changed as well, and together with them we'll meet the Lord in the air. Boy, that's going to be great. But um, that's, that's what I believe about that. Now, let's go back to the third question. The third question is this. Got to go back up here and look at it. So we've talked about what does the binding of Satan mean? We've talked about what does the thousand years mean? Let's briefly talk about what does the release of Satan mean, okay? What does the release of Satan mean? Um, when Satan is released, it allows him to do the one thing that for a thousand years he couldn't do, and that is to um, deceive the nations, and he does that. He, he successfully he's successful in deceiving the nations and gather them all together, okay, as one huge push to uh, overthrow and overwhelm God and his people, but ultimately it leads to his own demise and destruction. All right, now, let's see here. Um, let's look at the second question, or... Let's go back to the second thing. I've answered those three questions, but my original question is, what is happening during this period of a thousand years? The first thing that we emphasized in the first three verses, Satan is bound so he can no longer deceive the nations. Okay, that's clear from those three verses. Then the second thing that happens during the same period of time is that dead saints come to life to reign with Christ. Now, this has got all kinds of views too, okay? I didn't know this. You know, Bob, you and I have talked about this. For years, I was a pan-millennialist, you know? Hey, are you pre? Are you post? Are you ah? I'm pan. What's that mean? It, it's all going to pan out in the end. I didn't know and I didn't care, right? And uh, when I began to study Bible prophecy, I mean, really study it because I wanted to know, okay? 
one thing that really enlightened me. Take away the labels for a minute. All these different views that exist out there, they can't all be right, I'll tell you why. Because depending on what view you have, some say there's one resurrection, some say says there are two resurrections, some says there's even four resurrections. That's mathematically impossible. It can't, it's got to be one of them, it can't be all of them. Well, that comes into play in how you interpret verses 4 through 6. So let's look at that. Verse 4, John says, Then I saw thrones, and people seated on them, seated on them who were given authority to judge. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who, who had not accepted the mark on their forehead or their hand. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Let me point out something you need to realize. In verses 1 through 3, the focus is on earth. It's what Satan cannot do on earth until God says, Okay, now you can go. God is, God is preventing Satan from deceiving the nations on earth until he gives him the go-ahead. That's what's going on in the first three verses. In verses 4 through 6, we shift back to heaven. Every time you look at a throne in Revelation, it's in heaven. And here they are in heaven. And so the picture, uh, according to... To one commentator, he says, the picture in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, answers a pressing question during times of intense persecution. When Christians are a weak minority, when great imperial powers are arrayed against them, is there any hope for victory? What happens when Christians are viciously, viciously put to death for the faith? It appears to the world that they've been decisively defeated. The persecuting authorities are very much alive and they're powerful, powerful as ever while Christians have been simply wiped out. Christianity appears to be hopelessly weak. Does God not care? Is He really in control? Can anything undo the defeat that Christians have suffered through their martyrdom? And then Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6 answers this question with heavenly realities that need to be included in assessing the situation. When we see these realities, the tables are completely turned. It turns out that it's impossible to defeat Christians. Even when demonic forces are ravaging the church, they're only establishing Christians in positions of real power. What, here's the thing. Theologians call this the intermediate state. And you might say, what in the world is the intermediate state? That's the time period of your existence between your physical death and the day Christ comes back and we're raised, our bodies are raised, okay? What happens between our physical death and the, the day that the Lord comes back and raises the dead and everybody that knows Him is now with Him? What happens? Well, we know the answer. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? But think about it. To be absent from the body, it does mean to be present with the Lord, but to finish that complete thought, if I'm absent from the body as a believer, then that means I've died and gone to heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord without my body. Just my soul, my spirit, okay? But when Christ comes back, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and I'll be reunited with that body, okay? If heaven was all there was to it, then the body dies, it's buried, no big deal. You know, Greek mythology focuses on the immortality of the soul, okay? But what they need to hear is about the resurrection of the dead because that's the gospel. Because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, we're going to need our body, okay? And so before Christ ushers in the new heaven and the new earth, He's going to give us that new glorified body. Hallelujah, okay? So, all these... Uh, 
deceased saints, those who participate in the first resurrection, according to verse 5, they reign for a thousand years. And uh, according to verse 6, only those who take part in the first resurrection will overcome the second death and reign with Christ. Now, it's interesting here. We are given terms here that are new. First resurrection. Only time it comes up in the Bible is right here. First resurrection. That's going to make you go, now, Brother Corey, you just said there was da-da-da-da-da, depending on who you talk to, how many of them are there. Well, look at here. It says first resurrection, and then it also says second death. It doesn't say second resurrection and first death, but it's certainly implied, is it not? It's certainly implied. So here's how Michael Kukendall says it, and I agree. Those who belong to Christ die once, but they rise twice. They die once physically, but they rise twice spiritually and physically. Whereas those who reject Christ um, rise once, but die twice physically and spiritually. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I could repeat that about ten times, but I hope you got it. If you don't, come and see me afterwards. You know, everybody is born, and then we die, unless we're born again, according to John's salvation language. You know, to be born again means to be saved. So you're born, if you're a Christian, you're born, and then you're born again. And even when you die physically, you're still alive spiritually. And then you'll be alive again physically at the resurrection. Okay? Just trying to lay that out there, trying to be as clear as I can. Let me read it the way John said it in his gospel. John 5, 24. Listen to this. Or John 5, 20, 25, 25. John 5, 25. He's, uh, here's what uh, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Okay? For just as the Father has life in Himself, so also He's granted to the Son to have life in Himself, and He has granted Him the right to pass judgment because He's the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all, all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life and those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus taught a general resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So did Paul in the book of Acts. That's what I believe. Now, the first resurrection that's mentioned here is talking about coming to life spiritually when you die. And if that's the case, then you don't have to worry about the second death. See, the first death is physical, but the second death is spiritual. And if you experience the first resurrection, you don't have to worry about the second death. And that's what John is saying in Revelation 20. Well, let's move on. Original question. What is happening during this period of a thousand years? The first three verses, Satan's bound so he can no longer deceive the nations. The second thing, the dead saints come to life to reign with Christ in heaven. Okay? And I would say that's going on right now. That's verses 4 through 6. Then the third thing we see about this time period is in verses 7 through 10. Okay? And that's when Satan is released to go and deceive the nations only to be defeated and destroyed. Look, if you will, in verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever. Now it's interesting there in verse 10 how the devil has the same fate as the beast and the false prophet. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur 
which is the same place where the beast and the false prophet went. Let me see if I can throw this at you for a minute. So Revelation is the most symbolic book in the Bible. That's why it gives everybody fits to try to understand it. And yet too many people insist that chapter 20 is literal when it's the most symbolic book in the Bible. Now, when you read the first 11 chapters of Revelation, you have Christ walking among the churches. He has a word for each one of the churches. And then we have this vision of the throne room of heaven, and we have a dilemma. Who is worthy to open the scrolls of the seal? And John learns there's one. His name is Jesus. He opens the scrolls of the seal, all seven of them. Things began to happen. Then you have the uh, trumpet judgments, and they announce warnings to the world and their partial judgments. Then you have the bowl judgments, and they are complete judgments. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 11, and let's go there for just a minute, by the time you get to chapter 11, you've gotten to the second coming of Christ. Because in Revelation 11... Verse 15, the seventh angel blows his trumpet, okay? And there are loud voices in heaven. And it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign how long? Forever and ever. And I, and I could go on, but I won't. And then many scholars who study Revelation have this theory that Revelation is actually two books in one because everybody notices a shift in chapter 12. And um, in chapter 12, things begin to shift, and they really do. Why? Well, I think it's this. In chapter 12, it begins to portray this great sign in heaven. You know, the woman fixing to have a baby, and the dragon comes to destroy her. And then as you go through the last half of Revelation, it's like zooming back and zooming in at how the end all goes down. And all these enemies of God, we're given the complete story on each one. You know how you're watching a program and you've got all these characters in the story and so it'll shift to one character and you find out what happens, what's going on in their life and then all of a sudden it shifts over here and here's what's going on in their life. It's almost like John is doing this. And so what he does is he shows us these beasts that come from the sea and the earth and then he begins to see how they're all defeated. First, it is the, uh, the, uh, the, the prostitute, the great city, Babylon the Great. And that's, in, uh, that's, I think, in chapter 18, fallen is Babylon. And then you see the fate of the false prophet and the beast. And then you see the fate of the dragon, the ancient serpent, Satan. Okay, I feel like he's going around the mountain, going around the mountain again, going around the mountain again, each time he's going a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper. When we, when we insist that this is linear thinking and it's all literal, it's really hard to explain all this stuff. When you see how symbolic the book is and how he's going around, but he's going a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper, it all begins to make sense. And so here we see it's time for battle. Again, let me show you how this works. Go to chapter 16 for a minute. I'm going to make this quick. In Revelation 16, verse 14, in Revelation 16, verse 14, um, we are told that demonic spirits perform signs. They travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. As early as chapter 16, we see that there's going to be a great showdown at the very end. Okay, And then in chapter 19, we see it a little bit more. In, in chapter 19, verse 19. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. Notice how that built on what chapter 16 said. We've zoomed in a little bit closer, a little bit more clarity, a little bit more detail. And then by the time you get to Revelation 20, verse 8, what happens? The Satan goes out to deceive the nations 
at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea that came up across the breadth of the earth. They surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city, and then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The battle was over, okay? Just like that. Um, I don't even have time to go to Ezekiel, talk about Gog and Magog, to talk about how Revelation 19 and 20 are linked together. One depicts the battle where he just speaks the word out of the sword of his mouth. The other one speaks about fire coming from heaven. You go to Ezekiel, they're both mentioned. And so it all links together. Just don't have time for that, but it's there. So we have here, we have here in Revelation 27 through 10, a description of the same battle described in Revelation 16, again in Revelation 19, and now here in Revelation 20. And uh, these are not three different battles. We have one in the same battle. I believe it's the battle of Armageddon. And it's the final attack of anti-Christian forces upon God's people. And the new thing we learn here in Revelation 20 is what happens to Satan. He's thrown into the lake of fire. Now, give me about 10 more minutes and I'll be done. It's It's so hard to cut off the baloney sometimes, right? All right, so here's the thing. I wrestled with this for years, okay? I grew up um, I grew up, and what I was taught and was told was a different view of Bible prophecy. And I accepted that, and I was fine with that until one day I was on staff as an associate pastor. The pastor resigned, and he was teaching a Bible study on Revelation, and they wanted me, since the pastor had left and I'm the next person on staff, they wanted me to finish it. And now all of a sudden it goes from what do I believe to what do I really believe because I'm going to teach it. And that scared me to death. And so I, I managed to buy a bunch of books with a lot of charts and just parrot the knowledge that I got from the books. But when I got done with finishing that Revelation Bible study, I said I'm not going to do that again until I study this stuff myself. My wife was pregnant with Elise. And before Elise was born, I began to study all this. And I studied it for about a year, year and a half. I went from I don't know, I don't care to, Lord, I know you're coming back someday and I want to be ready. And if I'm going to talk about it, if I'm going to teach it, I guess I need to understand it. I started with the resurrection of the dead. I started with eternal judgment. That's what Hebrews 6 says. Hebrews 6 says that we need to move on past the elementary teachings about Christ and move on to maturity. And two of those things are the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That should be basic stuff. And so I began to study the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's when I realized that based on your view of prophecy, you might believe in one resurrection, two resurrections, four resurrections. And I went, whoa, stop, 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 too much. And I went back and I said, what does the Bible say about the resurrection of the dead? What does the Bible say about the judgment? Let's start there. And then I began to go into the deeper things. As a result of about a year to year and a half, I finally came to a conclusion. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's where the divide is, and I don't mind being honest about this because I have nothing to hide. My view of prophecy changed when I understood this one fact, okay? This one fact. I was taught, okay, I was taught that all Bible prophecy applies to one or two groups, either to Israel or the church. And you have to decide, you have to, you have to look at what it's saying and wh- what, who it's talking about. And if it's about Israel, it's over here. And if it's about the church, it's over here. And then you play those two things out. Well, when I went and read my Bible, and this is a whole sermon in itself, so I'll cut to the chase, I realized that all Scripture points to Christ. All the promises of God are yes in Him. I personally believe that all prophecy, the Bible, matter of fact, Revelation says that Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So what I'm trying to say is that all prophecy ultimately points to, is fulfilled in, through, and by Jesus. Jesus. If your study of Bible prophecy doesn't give you a better picture of Jesus, I don't care what your view is, something's not right. Okay? And so... Once I had that view, once my premise changed, my premise changed from Israel and the church to Jesus. Once my premise became Jesus, 
it led me to a completely different understanding and obviously a completely different viewpoint or outcome, okay? And so my goal when I teach Bible prophecy is to, to give you a better picture of Jesus. If I've done that, then praise God, I can live with the, with the rest, okay? Uh, whether you believe my view or not. So let me say this, and I'll wind this up. Food for thought. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have taught that this passage was a millennial kingdom for the Jewish people. But the problem is, the only thing I see in here at all is verse 8, Gog and Magog, and then the beloved city in verse 9. But obviously, the focus is on what Satan can do and can't do, and what happens to those that die or they're martyred for Christ, what happens next in their lives. I don't see anything about a land promise in Scripture. I don't see anything about any of that. And so here's my question for you, and it's something to think about. What really is the hope of the Hebrew people? What really is the hope of the Jewish people? I was taught and told it was a golden age of a thousand years where Christ would literally land on the Mount of Olives and He would literally rule on a throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And that sounds good, but then read the books on it. And I've got the books. I know what they say. I don't want to name names, but I know what they say. They say, well, the, they'll, they'll have the temple. They'll reinstitute the sacrifices. And when you push back on that, they'll say, well, they're memorial sacrifices. And they have to say that because here's the thing. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that the blood of goats and, and oxen and all those other animals can never take away sin. But Christ died once for all time to purchase our eternal redemption. When, when, when Jesus died on the cross and shed His blood, He purchased our redemption, but it's not just redemption, it's eternal. In other words, forever. And those sacrifices don't have to be done over and over again and again. Because once for all time, Christ did it, and He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Um, then, then they'll say, after the thousand years then Satan will lead this worldwide rebellion and then he's put down and defeated. And I've never liked that. I, I never have. I'm like, so Jesus is going to come back. He's going to rule and reign in, on earth for a thousand years and then a rebellion? What kind of king, what kind of kingdom is that? That's why I believe this. I believe that when Christ comes back, all those enemies are defeated. He literally rules on earth in the new heaven and new earth, forever. Period, exclamation point, the end. Well, let me answer this one last question. I promise I'll be done. Because my last question is, what is the hope of the Hebrew people? I want to show you just very quickly. It'll take about four minutes. In Hebrews chapter 11, you know the faith chapter. Let's look at what the scripture says itself. In Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, look at what it says in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Let that sink in for a minute. Abraham, the patriarch, the founding father of the Jewish people. What was his great hope? Yeah, God promised him, him some land, and he said it'll belong to you forever, but he was really looking for a city, a city whose architect and builder is God, a city with foundations. Do you know what city that is? Our choir sings about it. New Jerusalem. It's going to appear in the next chapter, Revelation 21. 
Then you go on down a few verses later in Hebrews 11, verse 13, after it mentions Sarah. Then it says, These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. There's that city thing again, the new Jerusalem. And then in Hebrews 13 verse 14, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come, the new Jerusalem. That's what the, that's what the book of Hebrews points to. I would say this to anyone that says, Corey, you're wrong. I believe it's literal. I believe the great hope of the Jewish people is the golden age of a thousand years on earth. How come that's not mentioned in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament? Why is it not there? It's not there. What is there is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the great hope of the Hebrew people. Don't believe me? Go to Acts chapter 3. In the book of Acts, chapter 3, the gospel hasn't left Jerusalem yet. The early church has been born. 3,000 people were saved on Pentecost. And now in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. They hear they heal a lame man who can't walk. A crowd gathers and they give credit where credit's due. This has been done in the name of Jesus. And they begin to preach Jesus, Christ crucified. And then here's the point of the sermon. Peter says in Acts 3.19, Therefore, listen to this, Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, who is appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive Him until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through His holy prophets from the beginning. And what are you going to see in the last two chapters of Revelation 21 and 22? The new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, coming down of heaven to, to, to earth, and God is now going to live among men, His people. Amen? And as a result, as a result, the curse is reversed. Peter is telling the people in Jerusalem that heaven has received Christ until the time of the restoration of all things. He didn't talk about a thousand-year kingdom, golden age. He's talking about the great restoration, the new heaven and the new earth. He says the holy prophets spoke about it from the beginning. I've cited Abraham. I've cited uh, the book of Hebrews. I've cited Peter. I've cited John. Let me mention two more. In Romans 8, Paul would say it this way. Romans 8, 20. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's the fall. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. In other words, creation is waiting for that day when there is the new heaven and the new earth and the curse is reversed. That's the great hope. That's it. Then, of course, in Revelation 21, the new heaven and the new earth. And then let me give you one more. One more. Let me go to an Old Testament prophet. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says, For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad or rejoice forever in what I'm creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing earth, uh, infant will no longer live only a few days or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man. And the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. Now, depending on what kind of Bible you have, uh, some Bibles that have subheads, they will say that verse 17 is the new heaven and the new earth. Then they'll immediately say verses 18, 19, and 20 are this millennial kingdom. 
But what does the Scripture say? If you read it in verse 17, and you have it in the new earth, and then he begins to describe it, then be glad in verse 18 and rejoice forever in what I'm creating, the new heaven and the new earth. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. There's that city again. No weeping, no crying. And then you got to think about it. When you're describing something that people have never heard of before, the best way to explain something that you've never heard before is to start with something familiar, something that you know, and then put a spin or a twist to it, okay? It's hard for us to picture a new heaven and a new earth. What in the world would that be like? And so he uses earthly language to describe a heavenly reality there in verse 20 when he says that, that the one who dies at 100 years old will be mourned as a young man and the one who misses 100, uh, 100 years will be considered cursed. And a lot of people see, see, that can't be the new heaven and new earth because they die. I believe he's using earthly language to convey something there, okay? We're going to live forever. Now, that's one of the weaknesses to my particular viewpoint. I don't mind being honest. If I had the time, we could look at Revelation 20. We could say there's four views in the millennium. Here are the merits to this view, this view, this view, and this view. And then we could flip the coin and say, and here's where this one's really messed up, and that one's messed up, and this one's messed up, and that one's messed up. None of them are perfect because it's our understanding. So let me wind this up real quick. Anthony Hokema says, So understand, the passage of Revelation 20 says nothing about an earthly reign of Christ over a primarily Jewish kingdom. Rather, it describes the reigning with Christ in heaven between their death and the, and the second coming of Christ of the souls who have died. It describes the binding of Satan during the present age in such a way that he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel until the Lord allows him to. Maybe the Baptist faith and message is where we should end. Here's what we believe, and I think we can all agree on this. In the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 10, I believe, entitled Last Things, says this. It's a short paragraph. God, in His own time, in His own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to His promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. The only thing I would add to that is in the new heaven and the new earth, right? But all that to say this, the takeaway, we've got a lot to look forward to. We've got a lot to look forward to, but we've got to be willing to bear the cross if we're going to wear the crown. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. Thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we're encouraged. I pray that we're strengthened. Lord, I pray that we're thankful, Lord, that we know how all this ends. We know, Lord, that you win. And Lord, we know that one day you will defeat the devil and all the other enemies and you will ultimately reign on earth. And Lord, you will reign forever. Your kingdom will never end, and it will never be destroyed. And Lord, I praise you because you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.